the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, which is a, an amazing prophecy, 66 chapters. Phil gave us a really helpful introduction last week to overview of the, um, of the prophecy of uh, this uh, epic, this um, pinnacle, really, of, uh, of many of the things in the Old Testament. As he was saying, it's the most quoted prophet in the, uh, in the New Testament, uh, most quoted by Paul than anyone else, and indeed carries so much of the gospel theme. It refers to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And speaks of good news. The quantity, content, quality of that. Loving Lord, uh, we, we ask that the, the scope and the magnitude of the gospel as spoken by Isaiah would have timely effect this evening. Good news is good because it speaks into the challenge and the bad and the broken and the lost. It's good because you have not abandoned us. But as Isaiah spends a lot of time in, and we won't see it all today, but he he reminds us that we need to understand the point that we are in order to understand the impact of a rescuer. I pray that none of us would be foolish and and write off and, uh, and discount what you say. But know that actually you shed light that reveals and defines and illustrates. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to uh, to have a Bible. I hope you have one, uh, but uh, also to have that open uh, with you this evening or on a device if your battery allows it. Uh, chapter one of Isaiah. There are some Bibles around if that's the case. Uh, I'm going to kind of go through sections, um, not read it all in one block, but we will, I'll make sure uh, Chris knows where we are at the start. First, the first verse. Surprisingly, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Can you leave that up if that's just helpful? Um, when uh, Phil and I were training, and if you do any training in um, public speaking, particularly in the, in the ways of rhetoric, it's a, a bit of a, a misused term, of communication theory, or if you go, uh, maybe you haven't done that, but you go to a conference or a, uh, an event or something like that, kind of communication theory says one of the first things you should do in the opening two sentences is build rapport. I've already taken more than that, uh, that people tell you that the first couple of sentences, the first moments of a talk will either win people on side or they will make a judgment about you and switch off, particularly if you don't know the person. So if you go to somewhere like New Wine or Spring Harvest, very often the speaker on the main platform will get out, will start stand up and say, hi, I'm X or Y, and then they will launch into some joke or funny story. And the idea is that laughter is disarming. 
that immediately, oh, who's that? that who, are they? who does she think she is? How, who, how, what is she going to say to me or him? Uh, and uh, there's kind of that immediate getting somebody on side through humor, through illustration, through personal story, and so forth. Not so Isaiah. The introduction, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. One verse, the introduction of who and where and when. I mean, we get in chapter 6 his call story, but in chapter 1, one verse, a few short words. We're given the father's name of uh, Isaiah, Amos. We're told by locating it with these three, uh, four kings, sorry, these three kings, we're given the historical location, 740 BC to about 686 BC. And we're told the names Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Turbulent times spanning a long section of history, 40 uh, 50, uh, 54 years approximately. Turbulent times, three kings. The era of the great bits of the, the story of, of David and Solomon, of the height of, of Israel, the covenant with David, the extension of the borders, the fame and reputation and wealth and culture and establishment of the temple in Jerusalem has begun to ebb away. Changing of the guards, changing of the seasons. Kings, as we can read in the, the chronicles of the kings in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, who should follow the ways of God, who should represent God as the son of Psalm 2 declares. And yet, not so much. I find it really helpful, I think, if you think, well, what's the application illustration that it locates as roots as in, in a history, understanding the time and the season. But I was reflecting on that and thinking, well, what does, how does that apply to you and I? I think it applies like this, that so often uh, that... Um, you can, uh, you can go to somewhere, again, if you hear someone speak or you go and browse a bookshop or look online, one of the first things that you, you do, well, I do, maybe I'm tarring you with my brush, is you kind of look at the credentials of a person. Are they experienced? Are they qualified? What's their track record? Is this their field of experience? Have they got a proven history? Isn't that right? If you're going to kind of look at something, you kind of think if you're going to look at something about uh, you know, science, you may find a physicist. You're not going to go to um, Oprah Winfrey, are you? But if you want to know about self-help, you might kind of go somewhere there. Do, do you see what I'm saying? You look at credentials. Indeed, when you come to a platform sometimes of, uh, of speaking, if you have the, the privilege and the option, very often you're introduced with this kind of great acclaim and this great list of who and why and uh, the kind of reasons that this person is there. The only hint of anything of Isaiah here is the name of his dad. In verse 2, he speaks the word of God. 
I think that's encouraging. I think that's encouraging because it's not the manner and the weight of experience that we can build up. But when God calls and chooses, when God uh, finds someone who is open and after him, he will use us. Whether it's uh, somebody who remains nameless in Scripture. It's interesting as you read through the stories of Scripture, very often you, you come across people who are just called a servant or a friend or the bystander who actually become really significant in the story of God. Of course, there are people with, with uh, kind of great accolades and titles and, and all that kind of thing. But don't let that make you think. He passes over you. For Isaiah, he was the son of Amos, and the Lord called him. Seems to be the, the testament of Scripture that the Lord looks and searches for people after his own heart and uses those. Verse 2. He launches straight into it. Bam, doesn't mince words. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand he launches straight into it. There's no joke. There's no kind of getting on side. Straight into the message. And it's a little bit hard hitting. It's a little bit blunt. Who is this Isaiah, son of Amos? Who does he think he is? Well, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. And he's putting Judah and Jerusalem on trial, just uh, a little bit of help if this is uh, a, a little bit kind of a, under, uh, the Old Testament can be perplexing at times. That um, Judah was one of the children of any, any guesses? Jacob I had 12 sons, remember that? Go and see the play in London if you want to be a revision. Uh, it's kind of fun and the songs and musicals. Uh, but he, Jacob had 12 sons, and one of those was Judah. And uh, when they entered the promised land that, that um, Moses uh, kind of said, this is where you're going to be. You're going to have different patches for the different offspring of the different tribes. And Judah happened to be given uh, a piece of land towards the south of Israel. Israel being the name of the whole place and also the name of the ten tribes in the north. That's a little bit confusing. It can mean all of them. And it and Judah is the bit in the south. And it happens to be in Judah that, um, in the land of Judah, the place that uh, David becomes king and chooses the city of Jerusalem to be the place that he will make his city and build the temple and establish the kingship. Does that make sense? So, in, and that's all fine and well and good, and David is the king and establishes it, and then David dies, and Solomon, one of his children, becomes the king. And it's the great glory days. It's called the golden era 
and the kingdom is united. All 12 tribes and the, the boundaries, and we still hear the implications of those boundaries in today in modern politics of, of occupied territories and West Banks and Golan Heights. That was the span and the, and the scope of the land at that time, historic Israel. But it all went a bit messed up with Solomon's children. They couldn't work out who, won, who would be king, and there was rivalry, and the kingdom split. And the historians and the books tell us that the northern kingdom, the ten in the north, usually called Israel, split from the southern kingdom, Judah, whose center was Jerusalem. And they kind of vied for each other. And, and because the people in the northern kingdom hadn't got a place of worship like Jerusalem, they set up their, uh, a kind of rival one. And they started to adopt ways and practices of the pagan nations that, had been, uh, that surrounded them. And that wasn't God's heart at all. And the northern kingdom uh, kind of abandons a lot of the covenant and a lot of the ways of God, the ten tribes, and God judges them. And in the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is based, and the line, uh, well, they're both in the line of David, but in there's two rival kingdoms going on. But in the south, in Jerusalem, God's city, and with the temple, God's temple, and in the, the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God had said he would dwell, people believed that, that, was, that they were God's people, that they had remained true to the old ways, true to the covenant, true to their kind of origins in history. And they believed that God would protect them. Because they hadn't rebelled like their naughty siblings and relatives and, uh, and kind of people who'd abandoned. And indeed, they also had this view that, um, uh, that if things were going well, I mean, this is really similar to us. If we think that things are going well, our life is easy and uh, that there is good times and there aren't any struggles and we're not being persecuted and there is favor upon us, we easily equate that to being blessed by God. Understandably, don't we? I'm blessed by God because, uh, you know, I'm not being oppressed and challenged and, uh, and harassed and persecuted. The people at this time, as Isaiah spoke, they believed God was pleased with them. They were enjoying peace and prosperity. In fact, it wasn't like the days of Solomon, but it was the best days since then in over 200 years. It's easy to mistake ease for blessing. Easy to to mistake kind of like the summer seasons of life as the favor of God. And there's a theology that's been promoted in many parts of the world, prosperity gospel, that kind of works on that. That the more prosperous you are, the more blessed you are. Have you heard of that? It's not true in entirety. And Isaiah will speak into that and speak about the suffering servant. And says that, that actually the form of peace, the, the form of stability of peace God's favor, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it is straight into into the declaration that he says Isaiah is saying do not be deceived do not be deceived and in in verse 2 he starts, he says, he uses two illustrations. Well, he calls upon the heavens and the earth. He says, now listen, he's a judge. It's like a law court. It's, it's like he's, he's saying, God is judging you. 
You think you're all content and sorted and fine with God. You've got it so badly wrong. He says, hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And he uses the illustration of an ox. I mean, we don't see the ox and the donkey as the most astute in the animal kingdom, do we? Uh, we, We might think of the eagle or... Uh, the dolphin maybe now as smart creatures. We wouldn't go to the donkey and say, you're smart like an ass. But Isaiah wants to make that point, that even the donkey knows more than you. The donkey knows its owner's manger. The ox knows It's master. They submit to the master because they know that the master feeds them. They know where their bread is buttered. But Israel and Judah, God's people, despise him. He is their father, the Holy One of Israel. They were made his children. He chose them and adopted them to be his people. But the children have rebelled and despised. Verse 4, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. They prefer, in other words, to act like evildoers than children of God. I mean, I mean that's a bit of a hard-hitting message, particularly if they're nice, civilized people with culture and perceive themselves to be the favored ones. I mean, who is this to come and bring such a word? paints the picture in this image of of calling upon witnesses, a bit like a law court, of of proving and pointing to evidence and calling witnesses and says, you know, even, even the donkey knows where it should go. But these people, no, they don't. Verses five to nine. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners. Right before you laid waste as when overthrown by stranger. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty has left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. Isaiah announces them it's not good. And he calls them to repent. He begs them. He says, you're being stupider than a donkey. Why choose the whip when you can feed from his hand? 
He, he points back in their recent history and says, when the Arameans came and they oppressed and they surrounded and they outnumbered and they brought affliction, it was like they were just a small hut in a field of cucumbers and there was just a small remnant of survivors. God preserved them. Why? To remind them that they had to trust in God alone. And Isaiah repeats this message and draws them back to remember what had happened to their sisters and brothers in the north in the oppression of the Assyrians and says, turn back. You too are guilty. He builds on this case. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 10. You rulers of Sodom, listen to the instruction of your God, you people of Gomorrah. I mean, you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, don't you? It's not a a kind of a wholesome story, is it? It's a story of judgment. It's a story where people had turned their back entirely upon God and God rescued Lot from amongst them and judged that city and caused it to be decimated and destroyed because of their wickedness. And here the same template is applied to God's people. I mean, that's really disturbing. We always set up a them and us, don't we? We sit in the place of moral high ground and and look down or over and upon others and say, we are better than. We're not like that. And yet, Isaiah from Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, paints the picture and says, you, Jerusalem, are no better Gulp. You, Jerusalem, are no better than the city of Sodom and Gomorrah with all its wickedness and debauchery. It's still in modern parlance, kind of the, the kind of the expression of oh, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't go to that place. It's wicked. And Isaiah says, like Jerusalem. Why? Verse eleven: the multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Wow. That if you've been a visitor and a time traveler and had gone to see the devotion that was going on in the city, you'd have thought, wow, these people, they must love God. That on the festivals and the times allotted, they would journey and they would sacrifice and they would bring their offerings. And they would sing the songs and pray the prayers and be in the right place and and be seen and be saying the correct things. But God says, it's rubbish 
to me. It's worse than rubbish. It's abhorrent. The Lord puts his finger on it through Isaiah. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Worship matters. For, for the people at that time, they understood how they were to approach God and they were good at it in the mechanics, in the doing, in the observing, in the form of. On the Sunday, in the set times, in the set ways, they knew the procedure. But you see, the thing about Almighty God, the Holy One, is that he sees things into the motive, the heart, the mind. He sees how that offering, how that worship is being brought. And more than that, he sees, does, does what happens in that sacred time, that time of gathering in the temple, that time of set apart, that Sabbath time, that, that particular festival, that particular celebration, does that match up to what happens in every other moment and time and place and space in life? Does it, match? Does it match up? Because if it doesn't, if it's just for the, the sacred and the holy and the moment, and then as soon as that is offered, we're okay now. We go back to whatever way of life we would choose. And God says all of that is nullified. All of that becomes worthless. All of that becomes just facade. That of course they were called to offer blood sacrifice because they knew that worshipping God mattered and dealing with sin really mattered. But Isaiah puts his finger right on the money, he says, unless that's matched by the heart attitude, the former has no meaning. They're just religious acts. They're just show and sham Without that heartfelt worship of God, the offering becomes meaningless. You cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. He says, and I I really like this, learn to do right. Verse 17. This doesn't come naturally. And we have to hear this even in today's day and age. This, this doesn't, hasn't changed. If you, if you think about the greatest commandment, and when Jesus sums up all of the, the Old Testament of all that God had spoken in these many pages and centuries and stories of God's dealing with his people, how does he sum up? Love the Lord God with heart and might and all your soul and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. When we look at the case of Jesus, he speaks and he welcomes all sorts. He, re- he welcomes Nicodemus in the dead of night because Nicodemus is a bit of shade and is a religious leader. But he still welcomes the religious leader. And he still welcomes the prostitute. 
and the child and the tax collector and the maimed and the marginalized. Jesus loved the Father with all of his heart, mind, strength and soul and he loves humanity. Every single person, every neighbor of Jesus, he loved. Not only did he teach, he embodied it. And Isaiah, in this window on the gospel, learn to do right. It's an, an important thing for us to, that if we neglect, uh, neglect Bible, if we neglect, sorry, if we neglect the Bible, we're not just foolish, but we miss the insight. Learn to do right. And this is an imperative, this is an action, this is a thing we keep needing to do. Learn to do right. Learning means intentionality. Learning means reflecting. Where have I, what have I done in my life? How can I improve? All that kind of thing. Learn to do right. To do right, how? Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Please the cause, plead the cause of the case, sorry, of the widow. I mean, this, this uh, as I've read it, is, is, and I've been reflecting on it, is a big challenge, isn't it? Particularly in my role of, of preaching and leading worship and, and praying in prayer meetings and, and visiting in pastoral care and, and doing the form of many of the things of religious activity. But am I seeking justice? Am I defending the oppressed? taking up the cause of the fatherless and pleading the case of the widow. Worship matters. It's as if, as Isaiah speaks, there could be this enormous pause. Because I think most people will go, I'm not off the hook here. And then he says this, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. For your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they'll be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Sometimes uh, when I first read the Old Testament uh, and when I'd heard about it before I was a Christian, I thought it's all about, in the Old Testament, this vindictive God who's just about making life miserable. You're judged, you're guilty. Who do you think you are? You're due for punishment. Don't you know it? And there is a really strong reminder that God is a holy one and we far, fall far, far, far short. But as I read the Old Testament for the first time, and as I reflected upon it, even in the harshest passages, there's always the moment of grace. It can be judgment, 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 and hope. 
It can be, uh, your sins are like scarlet, yet you should be white as wool. He needs to paint how far we have fallen in order to bring the great glorious gospel of hope. There's a story of a little boy who told his mother that he determined, he's just a small boy, he determined that he was actually six feet tall, a big grown-up boy. And the mum slightly quizzically said, um, uh, darling, how, how have you managed to arrive at this conclusion? Who has told you that you're six feet tall? You're not. You're just a little boy whom I love very much. Well, the little boy had worked it all out. He said, I've used my shoe to measure myself. And he was six shoes tall. But darling, that shoe is not 12 inches long. But he insisted, but mum, it's got to be because my foot's in it. (laughs) In some ways, his logic is right. But we know his conclusion is wrong. We know it's wrong because the little boy was unaware of the true standard to determine length. He knew nothing about the uniform standards of weights and measurement. He was sincere, but mistaken. And we laugh at his innocence and and smile and think that's kind of quaint. But so often ourselves and our world follows the same pattern. We use a false standard. And we convince ourselves that we are so high that we're not measuring in the way that God measures. C.S. Lewis, uh, one of those, uh, that great author that has so many profound points, he says that when people become Christians, if they're not careful, their sinning shifts from the outward and the avert and the visible sins of lying and cheating and, uh, and stealing and sw- cursing and swearing. It says, you know, that, that, is, that gets dealt with often. But for the Christian, it moves to a more inward and hidden and non-apparent attitude. And he lists among them a critical spirit. A spirit of judgmentalism, a censurous attitude. To pride. It's easy to measure ourselves by a standard we have devised. But Isaiah bursts the bubble and says, No, what matters is God's standard. Here, shockingly powerful, to neglect God's word is to oppress the poor. If we think we are following the word as good evangelicals, How do we treat the poor and the worker and the widow and the orphan? Verse 7, as I I read, 17, um, I found quite, quite strong, as you've probably heard. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the cause of the widow. What do you notice in that? Passivity 
doing nothing matters as well. Passivity, sitting back saying, I can't see it, I don't know, I, I'll turn off the news report. According to this, is as bad as a willing sin. That in failing to deliver the marginalized, the weak, and the vulnerable, failing to stand for them, is as if we've done evil outright. And verse 18, gosh, I'm glad we've got to verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter. What Isaiah has been doing, what God has been doing through his prophet is is holding up a mirror to see clearly, to be shocked. It's like the other day I turned up at a church and and Alan was my mirror because I put my jumper on back to front and I hadn't checked. And Alan spared me a look of, you know, being like mocked by the congregation more than normally. If only I had checked and checked how I'm doing the other Sunday, I got rid of this pair of shoes because it was causing me... I ended up, I was sitting outside at the end of the service, and I looked down, I had odd shoes on. One brown from one pair and a kind of slightly different pair of the other. And I thought, I'm glad no one noticed. I'm glad I didn't notice mid-service because I'd be really self-conscious. What a monkey. I remember going to school and, and my mum would always know if I'd gone and done the kind of bathroom chores like brushed my teeth and brushed my hair. Because if I hadn't looked in the mirror, she'd know. I wouldn't. Isaiah holds up a mirror that speaks truth and sees, helps us to see clearly and it is shocking But the nature of God's goodness is that he calls us to repent. Come now. Let us settle the matter. You you need to know that your sins are like scarlet. They'll be as white, uh, though they are as scarlet and red like blood. Yet I will make them as white as snow or as wool. The mirror is held up. The people of God need us to repent offer of rescue with both hands and then he goes on he says uh, it's interesting he says you know there is a choice uh, in verse 19 if you are willing and obedient you will eat the good things of the land we all like to eat I think most of us it's good to eat, you know, the, you, we see people out in the countryside foraging for blackberries and elderflowers at this time of year and, and all that kind of eating good things. But there's a wordplay in verse 20. But if you insist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. The sword will eat you. In other words, if you don't repent and turn back to God and and accept his merciful forgiveness and grace and turn back to him and say we've blown it and stuffed it and we've chosen our own way and we've gone gone with our own standards and we've forgotten, we've failed to learn what you like and and to live the way that you called us, we will either live in the blessing of eating from the riches of God's provision 
Or if you persist in resisting and rebelling, you will be eaten by the sword. And again, he he sort of paints this picture, and and it's astonishing that people chose to reject it still, but, but I guess things don't change much. He paints in the final verses of chapter 1 this kind of contrast between turning back to God and what you will be in him or what happens if you persist in rebellion. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. This is Jerusalem. She was once full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become drossed, your choice wine is diluted with water, your rulers are rebels, rebels, partners with thieves, they allow bribes and chase after gifts, they don't defend the cause of the fatherless, the widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, I mean, did you know that's the longest title of God anywhere in Scripture? The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as in the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken. And those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves. Like a garden without water. How many have been watering their garden the last kind of months and knowing that without it you wilt and become fragile? Fading. But the contrast, the mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench their fire. In other words, the choice is abandon God, worship idols and, uh, and follow kind of the, the, kind of the ways that are in rebellion to God. You'll become weak and utterly infertile. Or you'll be a tree of righteousness. Chapter 61 verse 3 picks this up. Oaks of righteousness. You will either persist in spiritual prostitution or come back to your calling into faithfulness and intimate relationship with the Father. Either you'll be God's enemy or God's children. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Come now. Come now. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The Lord loves to restore. The Lord loves to enter into the person, to the person who hears this, to those who are shocked out of their complacency and says, I don't want to be like this. I'll turn back to you. And the Lord, even in that place of judgment, extends the hand of mercy and says, come, I will do this.
Hallelujah. Let's worship together. I pray the Lord would...